listening to the news on RTHK. That's going to create more turbulence. The economic statistics. The triple dip recession. Collapsing commodities. Monetary policy has to do the heavy lifting work. Money for nothing. Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotra-Hora. Greece and Germany are set to offer compromises on conditions for a bailout. U.S. stocks rise on the Ukraine deal and Cisco earnings. And the People's Bank of China says the economy faces the risk of deflation. The Greek debt uh, crisis dampens as talks on bailout await a compromise between Greece and Germany. Today on Money for Nothing, we'll continue discussions on this with uh, Netixis's uh, Asia-Pacific chief economist, Luis Lucas Salipo. That's uh, right after a look at today's markets with uh, Gotex Penjing Asset Management's uh, Deputy CIO, William Ma. And uh, next, we'll have a startup company, AmbiLab CEO and co-founder, Julian Lee, to share the details of their Ambi Climate project. Tobias Hexter, senior strategist at True Partner, is co-host this morning. Welcome back, Tobias. Good morning, Renita. So, uh, Greece... Germany, Ukraine, we have a lot of Europe talk uh, going our way today. And it looks so great. I think everything is solved for at least the next 25 seconds. At least that's it? That's all we got to say? 25 seconds? Maybe a day, maybe a day. Okay. <laughs> all right. Let's look at, take a look at the top stories first. Um, U.S. stocks posted solid gains rallying on news of a ceasefire in Ukraine as a strong earnings from Cisco lifted the technology sector. The Dow Jones Industrial Average advanced 110 points to 17,972. The S&P 500 jumped 20 points to 2,088, while the Nasdaq surged 56 points or 1% to 4,857. The U.S. gains followed a strong day for European equities after the announcement of a peace roadmap between Kyiv and pro-Russian rebels. Still, Ukrainian President uh, Petro Poroshenko and others cautioned that implementing the agreement wouldn't be easy. And the IMF has announced a $40 billion financing package for the Ukraine. The money couldn't be coming at a more opportune moment because the country's economy is in its worst recession since the Second World War, having contracted by 6.7% last year. Another fall is predicted for 2015. The IMF's managing director, Christine Lagarde, said that the success of the financial program would depend upon regional stability. One of the risks um, over the the potential success of this program is obviously of a geopolitical nature. Uh, And, uh, you know, the sooner it is um, peaceful, calm, and people can focus on turning the economy around, the better. But we also believe that as it stands and with the macroeconomic hypotheticals that we have, the program stands as well. European leaders, uh, excuse me, Anders Asland from the Peterson Institute for International Economics was asked if the money is enough for a country in as bad a state as the Ukraine. Well, uh, the good news is, of course, that the agreement was reached now and Ukraine has just over $6 billion left in international reserves. So without this agreement, Ukraine would probably be in a financial meltdown within a month uh, or two. 
but uh, this money is not quite real. The IMF money of 17 and a half billion dollars, that's real money, but over several years. And uh, uh, most of the rest is not quite uh, there as yet. So the program appears uh, underfunded. But it's quite good that Ukraine, through this program, will also undertake very substantial reforms. European leaders said that Russia will have to wait for relief from economic sanctions, reflecting concern that the ceasefire agreement will only mark a pause in the war that has devastated eastern Ukraine. The Dow component Cisco jumped 9.4% after reporting that second quarter earnings surged 68% to $2.24 billion. Cisco CEO John Chambers talks about the company's second quarter profit and sales. It was the balance around the world was probably the key takeaway. We're back to growing again very healthily. We're managing in a tough environment. Uh, the geographic balance, the U.S. grew 7%, Latin America 12%. Europe, Africa, Middle East grew uh, 7%. Germany grew 12 UK grew 17 Southern Europe grew 20 From a product perspective, our data center products, uh, UCS server grew 40 Our switching grew 11 Routing grew 2 uh, Wireless grew 18, security grew 6. It was a very well balanced uh, by industry, by geography. Best we've had in three years, literally in terms of the best quarterly performance. So we were very pleased. So how concerned then is Cisco about Facebook's new networking effort? First of all, Facebook is a great company, and Kenny, they're good friends there. Cheryl and I share very similar views in terms of uh, gender diversity and other issues. Uh, Facebook uh, is into an area called White Box, and they're looking at how they do things differently. Take a step back. What Cisco does different than all of our peers is we combine 18 product areas, ranging from routing to switching to security to collaboration and mobility, into architectures, which allow our customers to produce outcomes much quicker. It's a whole different business model. And in terms of white label moving away from the company, just talking about white label competition in general, we signaled to the market that would be a key competitive push four and a half years ago. In white label, we do not view it as a major threat at this time. We're able to very crisply identify in our enterprise and government accounts how important security is, how important architectures are, how important when you have a problem that the vendor and the strategic partner you have is there to help you through it. So we're competing against white label very, very effectively and competing and gaining share versus all of, most of all of our major competitors. So it's fun again, uh, Stephanie. I think Cisco's back and we're back with a vengeance. Oil giant ExxonMobil rose 2% and oil services titan Schlumberger advanced 1.5% as crude prices rose. Brent crude oil is currently up 4% at $57. So, Tobias, we keep seeing these little peaks and troughs, little, but peaks and troughs nevertheless, in the prices of oil. What do you make of this? Do you think uh, oil has bottomed out? To be very honest, I would say that I have to be clueless on oil. And the reason behind it, there's so much force, both speculative, people intermix the geopolitical aspects, people have a nice set of conspiracy theories. Some of them I might even subscribe a bit to in relation to Russia. There are so many factors at work. This is just plain standard volatility and something that the central banks have paved over in the regular equity markets. But this is what you get if you have supply, demand and uncertainty. Plain standard volatility. I, I like the way you put that. <laughs> Makes it sound so easy. All right, let's bring in uh, William Ma, who is uh, our markets guest this morning. He is the Chief Investment Officer at Gotex Penjing Asset Management. Good morning, William. Morning. So, William, the S&P 500 is up uh, 4.7% for the month. 
If the market closes out the month at this level, then it'll be the best performance index since July 2013. But uh, not all investors are convinced that U.S. stocks will keep going up this year. Now, what do you think? Is the U.S. the best house in the bad neighborhood, uh, as they say? Well, there is no doubt that uh, the S&P momentum has been very strong. But uh, being based in Hong Kong and Asia, I think the opportunity set in the China A shares market is even more interesting. China A shares market, <clears throat> more interesting. Okay, uh, tell us more about that. Do you have specific stocks uh, in mind that you'd like to talk about? Yep, uh, I believe um, there, there is uh, some concern about the GDP slowdown in the China economy. And actually, the government wants it. Um, what I would like to say is, um, despite the economy is slowing down, there are certain sectors and companies that are very interesting and growing at two to three times of the GDP growth. For example, there is a stock in the China A shares market called Hai Tian. Interestingly, it's a soy sauce manufacturer and uh, it's only commanding 80% market share and it's growing quickly. And compared to Kinkoman in Japan, they are commanding 30% market share. We are talking about 20% net margin. And the, the stock is uh, having a low correlation to the equity market index. That's why I'm saying a lot of interesting stock opportunity in China Asia's market, but not uh, just investing from a slowing economy. Now, the research director of the People's Bank of China, Lu Lei, says that the country's economy is facing the risk of deflation. And he says that the domestic economy specifically lacks a new growth driver in the long run. Um, and adding, you know, perhaps that the manufacturing sector would continue to struggle. But what you are saying perhaps suggests otherwise. Yep, agree. Um, that's why we are more positive in the stock-specific uh, sector-specific ideas. And for example, the soy sauce manufacturer, again, um, in China, people are consuming 4 kg of soy sauce every year versus Japan, 8 kg. So despite the manufacturing sector is slowing down, but I think people need to consume more soy sauce. Another sector interesting would be healthcare. Again, because of the government policy of implementing wealth a welfare plan to the rest of the region, I think that part is quite uh, robust and um, is not necessarily investing in a slowing down economy again. So food and beverage, healthcare. Tobias, what are your thoughts? I just wonder in general as an outside of China investor, given that the A shares trade at decent premium compared to the H shares counterpart, would you think that you, if you want to play China, you're either forced to buy H shares or have to look for stocks, as you say, with individual value, something that's difficult for an individual investor? Yes, good point. I would say the interesting opportunity in a certain companies that is only available in the A shares, but uh, less available in the X shares. And let me give you another example. There, uh, the largest air conditioner manufacturer in China called GREE, G-L-E-E, is trading at 0.4 times PEG ratio. But uh, compared to the global peer group, some of the other white goods manufacturers, they are trading at 1.5 to 2 times PEG. So obviously, after the, the opening up of the market, uh, I think uh, some global investors, they would be interested to shift some of their global allocation uh, to the China-Asia market for this type of companies. Uh, William, are these specific uh, stock picks that you mentioned, um, are they in the area of investors' focus right now? 
or not so much? Not so much. That's why we are getting excited. And I think the domestic investor, uh, as you understand, 90% of the volume are by the domestic retail investor. And what they are more interested is on the momentum type of stocks and uh, late last year, early this year in the banks, insurance, uh, financial companies. And obviously, those type of relatively less uh, sexy sectors and companies are being forgotten. They're being forgotten. Are they worth being forgotten? Because I know some analysts are still pretty excited about uh, China financials, despite what you hear. I, I think um, the market is very efficient. And um, in that regard, uh, because the less uh, professional investor in China is a current situation, but going forward, I expect more people would focus on the fundamental and those unforgotten stocks will, will, will go back to the fair valuations. Tobias, your thoughts? I would tend to agree. And indeed, what you saw at the end of last year, beginning of this one, is much more like a, a herd gone out of control than uh, savvy investors looking for value. If people start selling their house or queue up until nine to have a brokerage account, you're talking a different supply and demand rule. All right. Okay, well, uh, thank you for joining us this morning. That is William Ma, and he is the Deputy Chief Investment Officer at Gotex Penjing Asset Management. Time is uh, now 8.16 a.m. and Greece and Germany are pursuing a deal on the conditions required to continue the Greek bailout. Each side signals a willingness to compromise. This is according to government officials taking part in the talks. Now, James Rickards is the author of The Death of Money and he told Bloomberg's Trish Reagan that the consequences of a Greece exit would be catastrophic. One of the questions I got most frequently, Trish, when this uh, came out is, who's going to blink? You know, it'll be Greece or Germany. My answer was, they're both going to blink. This is the dynamic of a successful negotiation. Neither side likes this. Greece doesn't like being sort of pushed around by the Troika. Germany doesn't like making concessions. But the consequences of failure are so catastrophic for both sides. Really? If Greece left the euro, it would be a complete catastrophe. There'd be no bottom to markets. Spain, Italy, Portugal, Ireland, the pressure on all of them would be right behind it. Conversely, if Greece... I uh, did give up the euro. It'd be back. Let's explore that. There'd be hyperinflation. Let's explore that. Both you say if, if Greece left the eurozone, yeah. it, it's a disaster. Sure. Contagion. I mean, a la Lehman Brothers, what we saw back yes, here? Yes, I think Lehman Brothers is a good. By the way, all the balance sheets are bigger. People's Bank of China, Federal Reserve, ECB, all those balance sheets are bigger than they were in 2008. There's a lot more leverage in the system. The, lo- the biggest banks are bigger. The whole thing that was too big to fail then is bigger and more complex today. All right, let's bring in our next guest of the morning, Luca Salipo, who is the uh, Asia-Pacific Chief Economist at Natixis. Good morning, Luca. Morning. And thanks for joining us after quite a long time uh, back on Money for Nothing. (laughs) Um, So, Luca, what do you make of this? Is Greece really too big to fail? Listen, what the, the, the the general idea that I that I have is that Okay, we are we have Europe, right? We have been having European institutions for long, and Europe was created. Uh, Europe, uh, EU, uh, European Union was created for very good reasons, uh, not to have a war, not to have you know. I mean, to, to also to give Germany a chance because Germany, of course, came out destroyed by the Second World War. So it was you know a, a community, and okay. and 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 actually it grew this way. 
today what we have is as you, the segment that you just uh, you just played uh people were saying okay we know europe is bad but getting out would be even worse so how this could you know continue could go on eventually what you are looking at now is like quick fix to a situation that is getting in the mind of people worse and worse because people have been uh, are being told okay it was a mistake we screw up completely in the last 20 years but getting out of it would be even more disastrous so it's a completely negative rhetoric either way so you cannot hold this for much longer. But then what is to be done? I mean it sounds like uh, Greece and perhaps some of the other countries as you suggest are caught between a rock and a hard place. I mean they uh getting out of it would be terrible yet uh, staying in it, you know, you suggest is not going to provide the answer in the long run. There are many things in this world Renita that have no easy answer and <laughs> no easy way out. And today we are we're seeing many of them, right? The zero interest rate and and this Europe thing. So it will not be single cases. Of course it has to be a, a, like a community come to term with the fact that this is no longer uh, in the interest of of European people this is no longer tenable because there is no positivity out of it so Greece and Germany of course they will negotiate because they are two countries whereas we have to come to terms with a collective decision that will take some time Tobias what are your thoughts on how these negotiations turn out yeah, it looks nice um, as a stage show and i would expect that in the end, there will be a nice European compromise that suits nobody. But I would like to ask, what do you think if, because we got a Greek game theorist on the side of the table, mm-hmm. Greeks might overestimate themselves and their importance. I think uh, the the soundbite from James Rickard showed him that he might own some Greek bonds because I don't think they're <laughs> that essential anymore. How would you see if, for one reason or another, they would fail and we got a Grexit? What would happen? You know, 2011, this could not have been possible. Uh, today, it is possible because you have several backstops, one of which is uh, the uh, so-called OMT by the ECB. So the European Central Bank will step in the market and buy whatever bonds they, they, they want, uh, basically on its, asse- on, on its own assessment of sustainability of prices and yields. So that's a very potent backstop. Now, central banks, you know, you can trust them till a certain point. You've seen Swiss National Bank. So commitment of central bank, you know, might might be trusted to a certain point. But this is sure that there is not going... The chances of a contagion, direct contagion from a Greek exit are much, much less. And I think that German really understood this. And the two or three rumors we got out of German minister at the beginning of the year says, okay, you know, if Greece wants to get out, then bye-bye. Where... Where on this, on the, under, on the deep understanding that we have now backstops that prevent Greece to use the uh, rhetoric argument that uh, if you don't do what I want, I will get out and I will completely destroy Europe. This is not something that Greece can use anymore. So I, I, t- I totally agree with you. So, Luca, you know, this discussion, um, you know, we've been having it for the last few days. It's been the topic of conversation this week. Oh, and really? Yeah. <laughs> surprise, surprise, huh? Um, one of our contributors said, okay, Greece all good and well. Uh, yes, we know, and uh, dangers of contagion and so forth. Um, but the real problem, the real problem is Ukraine. 
Now, uh, given the last set of meetings and this so-called ceasefire, has that problem been solved? Mm. It's like the Greece-German uh, agreement. It's, it's nice, as, as your guest said, it's nice for the next 25 seconds. So Stop short show. What, what did you say? You said uh, that, that, yeah, that, yeah, it's, it's the Greece and German agreement looks nice for the next 25 seconds, which is, is the same you can say about yeah. Ukraine. This is an, it, it has instability written everywhere, right? So it's, it's not because you have a ceasefire that the reason why Russian supposedly wanted to get in and the reason why, of course, Ukrainian wanted to defend themselves, uh, although it's not as simple as that, uh, still stay. The question is, is it good news for the world economy and certainly for the financial markets? I don't know. I mean, that's, I mean, frankly, for the world economy, now there are much bigger matters uh, than this. Although, of course, Russia is big, although it it deals with energy because the the, the connection and the networks of uh, pipelines between Ukraine and Russia are critical for Europe. So, of course, it's, it it has some kind of importance. But a ceasefire or not at this stage, with all the problems that we have, in the economy, if, we, if we're talking only about economy, of course, if we talk about people, it's another matter. But about the, the world economy, it doesn't matter much in the next three to six months if we have a ceasefire in Ukraine. Well, I mean, the, the question really is, how does it impact uh, the economic sanctions against Russia? I mean, that's a little bit up in the air. President Obama said that he, he might welcome the idea of uh, uh, eliminating those, but then European leaders are saying, no, 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 it, it's not that easy. It's very classical. I mean, it's, you know, Russia is a country that is, for, probably for policy mistakes, uh, is definitely too dependent on commodities. So when oil prices go down, Russia defaults or, or get, get into trouble. Look at 1998. So it's, it's history repeating. So there is really nothing that, that, that changed this. And Russia, if, if, if it really wants to get out of this situation of this complete dependence on, on, on international markets for, for oil and for other energy resources, has to completely overhaul its own economy. So it's not something that we're going to see in the next 12 months or, or even five years probably. All right, Luca, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Luca Silipo, and he is the Asia-Pacific Chief Economist at Natexas. Travelers heading for the mainland during the holidays are reminded to avoid crossing the boundary at peak hours and should plan their journeys in advance. Please also consider using rail services. Those using other public transport, such as shuttle buses or other cross-boundary coach services terminating at Huangang Port in Shenzhen, or local public transport services calling at Lokma Chao Spur Line or Shenzhen Bay are also reminded to avoid traveling at peak hours. Let's take a quick look at the numbers this morning. The Nikkei is down 64 points to 17,915. Australia's ASX index is up 97 points, 1.7% to 5,805. And Seoul's Kospi is up uh, just eight points to 1,949. Well, after the 2008 global financial crisis, many IT professionals made an exit in the banking and finance sector, said 
setting up businesses of their own. One of them is Ambilabs CEO Julian Lee. He founded his startup company with two partners in 2012, creating artificial intelligence hardware products. Uh, and he joins us now on Money for Nothing. Good morning, Julian. Good morning. So your company develops artificial intelligence hardware products. Uh, what exactly do you mean by that and what is uh, the USP? So basically, uh, our product, uh, currently the first product, AmbiClimate, is a device that automatically controls your air conditioner. We're actually uh, this new wave of products that combines uh, some big data-style analytics, uh, artificial intelligence, and applies that into the lifestyle of the consumer. So, you know, everyone knows the concept of a home automation, the Jetson-style sort of uh, home that has been talked about for 50 years, and that's proven to not really work. What we've found through our research is that consumers want, uh, you know, this new technology, this artificial intelligence to learn about them, to seamlessly integrate into their lifestyles. And so that's the sort of products we're developing. So is this the Internet of Everything sector that we're talking about? Yes. Uh, so we, this is part of, the, part of that sector. And when you went into this, uh, I'm curious, uh, how did you pick this particular product? Did you actually look at the sector and say, okay, my business plan is going to be aligned to the Internet of Everything because that is where technology is going? Um, yes, to a certain extent, yes. So basically, you know, when we first started this company in 2012, this was the beginning of the consumer-centric Internet of Things device. Uh, Internet of Things as a sector has been around for over a decade, but this, uh, you know, sort of three years ago was when you first started seeing consumer-centric devices. We looked at that device, we saw that, you know, most of these companies are focused on a Western or European lifestyles. No one's really looking at Asia, and we said, why not? I mean, Asia has a big population, growing affluence and high smartphone penetration, and for us, the air conditioner made perfect sense because Asia is a single market is the size of all the rest of the world combined. And when you say this air conditioner learns about you, what, what do you mean by that? So basically, we've actually found, you know, a lot of people complain about um, how come, you know, in Japan, they use air conditioners for heating as well. And people have said, you know, on a cold winter's day, why can't my air conditioner know to turn up the temperature by two degrees so I can wake up feeling comfortable? We found that air conditioners don't adapt to changing outdoor conditions very well, but also, more importantly, they don't understand you because your metabolism changes during the day. So when you go to sleep at night, what feels comfortable is very different from, let's say, first thing in the morning or after you've had a heavy meal or if you've gone for a run. These things all contribute to how you feel about uh, the, your environment. So we learn these things and we can automatically control your air conditioner to improve the feeling of comfort, not just the temperature itself. I'm certainly very intrigued because I can tell you for sure that my air conditioner does not understand me at all. All right, Julian, thank you so much for joining us this thank morning. You. That is Julian Lee. He is the CEO of Ambi Labs. So, um, Tobias, does your air conditioner understand you? We have a bit of a conflict of interest. It doesn't even heat, so I don't like Hong Kong winters. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. It just doesn't get any better, does it? Yeah. All right. Uh, let's take a quick look at the numbers before we close up uh, the show. Uh, the Nikkei is down 27 points to 17,952. Australia's ASX index up 106 points to 5,814. And Sol's Cospi up 9 points to 1,951. In currencies, uh, 1 euro currently buys you 1.14. Four U.S. dollars. The U.S. dollar is worth 118 yen, and one pound sterling is worth 11 Hong Kong dollars and 92 cents. Brent crude oil is currently at 59 dollars and 28 cents. Tobias, uh, here we are at the end of the show, the end of the week. It's Friday. Parting thoughts for the day and the week. 
Well, given the cold winter, I'm gonna warm myself for the next day to all these nice news coming out of Greece, Ukraine, and the other parts of the world. Enjoy it while it lasts. It never does. That's why you need one of those ambient climate uh, air conditioners. I'm in. Right? That, 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 because that, that, they can sense uh, your mood on Ukraine and Greece and everything else. Yeah, they just have to connect to the, the monetary supply from the central banks and heat it up a bit when needed. How that's affecting your metabolism. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for joining us this morning as guest host. That is Tobias Hexter. He is the senior strategist at True Partner. And I'm Renita Malhotrahura, wrapping up for Money for Nothing this morning. A quick look at the weather forecast for today. It'll be mainly fine and dry with a maximum temperature of around 20 degrees. Currently, the temperature is 15 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 59%. And now it's time for the news with Samantha Butler. European leaders say they may impose more sanctions on Russia if it fails to observe a new ceasefire deal in eastern Ukraine. At a European Union summit, the German Chancellor Angela Merkel, speaking through a translator, said the EU was already drawing up further sanctions. We are more than aware of the fact that a lot of efforts need to be made still, and this is why we keep all of the possibilities of response open. If it works well, we will support this process and be gratified to note this, and if it doesn't work, then we do not exclude imposing further sanctions. Chancellor Merkel had earlier briefed EU leaders on the agreement she and the French president brokered overnight between Russia and Ukraine. The ceasefire should begin in eastern Ukraine at midnight on Saturday. The Greek-